enforcement. I think if Paul today saw a list of some of the rules in some of the churches, in some of the world around us, I think he'd be a little bit upset. Maybe we'd get a letter from Paul. I don't know. And so if we really want to understand Paul's overriding big picture attitude towards women, we need to go back and consider in one of his other letters, Galatians, in Galatians 3.28, where he set forth this very clear doctrine. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. Paul preached equality in Christ for every single person who chooses to follow Christ. If we are saved, we are called into unity and equality with every other saved person, no matter their ethnicity, their social standing, their economic level, or their gender of male or female. Now let's keep in mind that Paul wrote this letter in response to some specific problems in the Ephesus church, as well as to address a more overarching principle for all churches that includes some specific roles for men and women within the worship service. So first, let's consider that that first part. Take a minute to consider some of the, the culture that Paul was addressing. Men and women in the first century church sat separately. And usually women covered their heads. Not that kind of arrangement seems pretty old-fashioned to us today in this modern world. But we need to realize also, as old-fashioned as that seems, we need to realize what a revolutionary place the church assembly was in the first century. In the Jewish synagogues, women didn't even worship in the same room as men, let alone across the aisle. And in the pagan religions and temples, like those that were in Ephesus, where many of these Ephesian Christians had come out of, men and women didn't mix at all unless it was in some kind of immoral or pagan ceremony down at the temple. And so church gatherings for the early Christians were the only place in all the world where men and women from different social classes and many ethnicities met together on a regular basis. And they not only met together, they met as equals before God. That was unheard of. I want you to think for a moment what it must have been like to be in the, in the congregation in Ephesus. Gathered in that room would be some slave masters, slave owners. And they might have felt uneasy meeting with some of the people that were their slaves. Think about that. It must have felt strange for the wealthy aristocrats coming out of that, the wealthy city of Ephesus to come and to kneel in prayer next to a lower class merchant or even a laborer. Imagine that. It must have been very uncomfortable for Jews, those that had come out of the Jewish culture and religion, to share a meal, including the Lord's Supper, with those formerly despised pagan Gentiles who they would never think of breaking bread with. And yet in the church, they did it all together. It's no wonder there was a potential for a kind of a culture war within the Ephesian church. Now, I'm going to read between the lines here for just a few minutes. That means I'm veering off here into an area of Rob's opinion. And I want you just to be aware of that, all right? And I'm going to take a guess as to why Paul dared to go where no man had gone before. 
and that is to tell a bunch of women what to wear and how to behave at church. Now, the Ephesian church would have had two predominant groups of women that were worshiping together. We just talked about that. Who could not have been more different. The Jewish women would have come dressed in loose robes. They would have had their heads covered. It was the same way their society had dressed in the synagogue for hundreds and hundreds of years, long before they became Christians. Also, in that same assembly, in that same gathering, the Greek and Gentile women who were converts to Christianity also came, dressed the way that they were used to when they had grown up, worshiping at the pagan temples, what would they do? They would bedazzle themselves with jewels and wear their hair in elaborately braided styles. And then add to the fact that the pagan worship these women were used to was very sensual in nature. Women were used to dressing in a provocative manner when going to the temple. And that must have just shocked those more demure Jewish women there in the assembly. And so here's what I think Paul might have been saying. Ladies, whether you're rich or poor, Jewish or Greek, dress with modesty. Don't draw attention to yourself with fancy hairstyles and clothes. You see, the principle behind Paul's instruction, I think, is pretty simple. When you all get together as the church, remember, men and women, that you represent Christ. Amen? And when you gather together as the Lord's church, you are representing God to the world around you. And so dress and act and speak accordingly. Now this brings us right into the next hot button issue in this passage. If we're all equals, what is Paul teaching us about the roles of women and men within the church? And so next, Paul moves from some comments that are, are shaped by the culture of the first century to some more teaching uh, that is perhaps transcending culture and time. So within the church, we are called to remain connected to God, representative of God, and priority number three, submissive to God. Submissive to God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If you use some of the older English versions, it might even say she is to remain silent. Can we just acknowledge right up front here that this is a difficult passage? Christian theologians, Bible scholars have wrestled with this passage for as long as the passage has been around. Is this about some specific dynamic in Timothy's church or in Ephesus? Is this a timeless comment about women and men? Is this only about public teaching? Is it about complete or partial silence? The list could go on. What I want you to see, though, first of all, is that it's important to know that the word translated here as remain quiet, or as I said in some versions, English versions, be silent, is the same root word that is translated as peaceful and quiet up in verse 2. That's where he was talking to the men, right? When he said, lift holy hands in your prayers that we might lead a peaceful and, what? Quiet life. 
godly and dignified in every way. And then further in the passage, when he addresses the women, rather she is to remain quiet, quiet. This word does not demand complete silence. It's not saying that women should never speak in the church assembly. Instead, it describes a quiet, peaceful attitude and manner. By the way, if it meant complete silence, we're all in trouble even this morning because I saw a lot of women, I heard a lot of women making a lot of noise around here today. Singing, right? Praying, all of those things. I wonder if some of the Ephesian women were stirring up kind of a gender war in the church. I can picture them calling out questions across the aisle to the men on the other side. Maybe some of them were trying to get their husbands to speak out on a certain topic. Maybe some of them had disagreed with what Timothy or the other church leaders were saying. Whatever their motives, they were causing a disruption in the worship service. By the way, the women weren't the only ones causing a ruckus there in the assembly, right? Notice that Paul gave similar advice back in, in verse 8 when we looked at that, when he told men to lift up holy hands in prayer, what? Without anger or quarreling. Again, we're talking about in the public assembly. What was going on with those men? Why were they angry? Why were they quarreling in the assembly? Probably the same reason the women were angry or yelling or whatever was going on there. People weren't happy. They were trying to get their point of view across, and it was not peaceful, it was not quiet, and it was not representative of God, and it certainly was not submissive to God or his ways. And so Paul told the men to stop trying to dominate each other, and he told the women to stop trying to dominate the men. I mentioned a statement last week that I think fits well here, and I want to say it again, and that is that we can disagree without being disagreeable. That is the kind of attitude that we must have in the church. That way, that's the way that men and women alike can represent Christ to the world. Even when we understand a difficult section of scripture differently. Now, Next, we come to a few verses that have filled the pages of commentary for millennia with all kinds of interpretations. That's verses 13 through 15, where it says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, Let's start with the last statement. What did Paul mean when he said that women will be saved, some versions say restored, through childbearing? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? Some people have said that it's a reference to the birth of Christ, the idea that salvation came through Mary with the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. Others think that it refers to the fact that, that after the fall, women retained the unique and special privilege of producing new life. Either of those could be correct in my opinion. There might be some other thing that Paul's talking about there. Here's something to know. In the pagan religious culture of Ephesus, they believed that life had its origin in Artemis, a woman, 
a female deity, and that rebellion and sin originated with various lesser male gods. Now, last week I showed you this picture this mo- of a, a model of the great temple of Diana or Artemis that has been erected there in, in Ephesus. You can visit that today. And that temple dominated the Ephesian skyline, but it also dominated the religious system and the economic system of the people, including the people in the church that had come out of the paganism. They used to worship at that temple, and now they were coming together in the assembly. And so here, Paul reminds the church how this false pagan thinking about Artemis, this female deity, this Greek Roman goddess, that idea is a source of life that clashes with the true biblical narrative. It was Adam, a man, who was the source of life, and it was Eve, the woman, who introduced sin. Just the opposite of the pagan culture. Now, there's a lot of discussions about the implication of all this, but I want us to remember that Adam is not off the hook here. It's not saying it's all Eve's fault, right? In fact, in another of Paul's letters to the Roman church, he reminds us that sin came into the world through one man. What man? Adam. He's not off the hook. And that salvation also comes through one man. What man? Jesus Christ. So the broader theological questions, and I'm sure there are many that are here today. Uh, Can women teach? Can women be in leadership positions? How much is okay? How far is too far? I'm not going to answer any of those questions today. Sorry. That's not my focus today. Remember last week I encouraged you, if you have those kinds of questions, please, I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you. Any of our elders would be glad to sit down and talk with you. By the way, I will share some more information about how our church specifically, Garden Way Church, and our leaders are working to understand these ideas next week when we move into chapter 3 and we look at the role of church leadership. So I'll share a bit more about us and how we lead here at Garden Way. But What I want to say today is whatever Paul is saying theologically, I think he is making a practical point to the women and to the men, and here it is. There's no room in the church for men or women who claim to have religious superiority. If you think you're better than anybody else or your way is the best, and if you have that feeling, there's no room in the church for that. That's not winsome, it's not healthy, and it's not good for the local church. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Paul was, was, I want to make sure we understand this. He's not saying that Adam was superior to Eve. That's a a teaching that some have claimed. uh, The idea that, that making men in some way superior to women in every way. Some people have used this passage to teach that. I want to travel back just briefly for a couple of minutes to the beginning, to Genesis, all right? Let's kind of go back there because Paul goes back to Genesis in his text here. And let's kind of see and remind ourselves what happens back there. In Genesis 1.27, it's very clear that God created both male and female in whose image? His own image. Men and women are created in the image of God. That's really clear in Scripture, isn't it? 
And then in chapter 2, we get even some more detail. After God created Adam, you might remember that he waited a while before he created Eve. And in the interim, Adam was busy naming all the animals. And as he did that, Adam saw that there was not a companion suitable for him. I think he's maybe jealous of all the animals, right? They're pairing off and all that. And Adam's like, what's going on here? And that's when God took one of Adam's ribs and he formed woman. When God brought Eve to Adam, I want you to kind of picture it like this. It was kind of like a father walking his daughter down the aisle to give her away in marriage. If you're a dad and you've ever done that, you you know what I'm talking about there. It's a unique privilege, isn't it? So God brings Eve to Adam. And in Genesis 2.24, it tells us what God intended for Adam and Eve when it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be what? United to his wife and they will become one flesh. And so this marriage relationship between a man and a woman was meant for their pleasure and for their protection. They were meant to work together in unity. That's God's design. That's God's plan. But guess what? We mess it up all the time, don't we? We're going to see that Eve messed it up. We mess it up in the church as well. So let's skip down a bit to Eve. Uh, In chapter 3, she's talking to the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 and in uh, 3, 6 there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Have you ever wondered why Eve didn't consult with Adam before she bit into that fatal fruit? I mean, it's standing right there. In verse 14 of our Timothy text, Paul teaches that Adam was not the one deceived, but Eve. I wonder if Adam and Eve together, in unity as God intended, would have made the right decision. How different would it be if Eve had said something like, I'll tell you what, serpent, I'll talk it over with Adam here, then the two of us will ask God, and then we'll get back to you. I think the serpent would have been out of there pretty quick. But we know that's not how it went, is it? Eve decided, Eve decided she didn't need to consult Adam. She didn't need to consult God. She decided she could call the shots. Then we see Adam, with full knowledge of the situation, choosing to join Eve in the rebellion. Well, here's what I'm getting to, folks. I think Paul recognized the same spirit of rebellion in the Ephesian church. Some members of the Ephesian church, men and women, were making the same kind of attempt to usurp, to seize, to grab, to exercise authority. The same kind of attitude that caused that original fall back in the garden. And friends, it is the same kind of rebellious spirit that infiltrates churches today. When we decide that our way of thinking or our priorities or our deeply held opinions or preferences are more significant than God's designed ways... We are not living in submission to God, but rather in rebellion. Rebellion against authority didn't work for Adam and Eve very well, did it? 
and it has no place in the church today. You see, the church is called to be a place of submission. Never a forced submission, though. Submit or else. That's not what we're talking about here. But a willing submission. A submission that we choose. A submission to God's plan. A submission to his purposes. A submission to his ways. Even when they clash with our own personal ideals or priorities or preferences. Meghalaya in northwest India is one of the wettest places on earth. The mile-high mountain range boasts the world's record for rain with an annual accumulation that once topped 82 feet, not inches, feet, 82 feet of water. Staying dry, of course, then, is a battle, but it's actually not the, the biggest challenge caused by all that constant rain. Over the years, all of that water has turned creeks into valleys and large gorges now crisscross the rainforest floor. Now most of that rain falls during the summer monsoon season. And in that season, gentle creeks become raging rivers impassable on foot. Now all through the forest and the rainforest there, an extravagant commuter bridge system is needed to keep all of the villages connected to one another. But normal bridge concepts are certainly not an option. Because of the rainfall, wooden bridges would quickly collapse because of erosion. Concrete and steel are certainly not available in that remote region. And so the, the members of the Kahasi tribe have crafted an ingenious solution. On a riverbank, a small strangler tree is planted. These are trees with lots of root systems. And once the tree is large enough, some of its many roots are extracted from the ground. And then these roots are meticulously cultivated to grow to a sufficient length, and they're coaxed to grow across the gorge. Over on the other side, roots of another strangler tree are sown from that opposing riverbank. And eventually, the root systems take hold, and they grow thick, and they grow together. And the roots from the various strangler trees act as a bridge, a walkway strong enough to support pedestrian traffic. Mud is fashioned into pavement, and the bridge then is open for business. And these literally become living bridges. Some of them have been in existence for centuries in that forest. The largest bridge there is called the Umshiong Double Decker Root Bridge. We have a picture of it there. there. That is just one small section of it. That bridge system there is over a mile long, and it's over 2,400 feet above sea level. Now, in case you thought, I don't want to ever be on a bridge like that. That's too iffy. Look at this picture. That's that bridge. Look how many people are on there. Isn't that amazing? That is a living bridge. And as you might imagine, the growth of hundreds of roots across wide spans in all these areas is a very slow process. It's so slow, in fact, that a bridge is not completed in one person's lifetime. The work of the project has to be passed on to the next generation. And so children are taught from a very young age how to care for the strangler tree and to direct its growth for future bridge work. That's a cool story. But friends, our life in Christ is itself a bridge. A bridge spanning the gaps between God and man. 
and the church itself as we gather together. We are a bridge from one generation to the next. And much like these living bridges of the Megalia, the work that we are doing will not be completed in a single lifetime. It must become our life's work together as the church, making the way safer, better, and clearer for future generations. This, friends, is why it is so important that we all get together regularly, in unity, with focus. Now, you might have noticed, if you were watching carefully, that we skipped over verses 4 through 6 of our text today. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, I've saved them for this conclusion because I believe they are the most significant section of chapter 2. You see, we can divide, we can argue, we can fight about styles of worship, the proper form of prayer, the role of women in the worship service or in the church. We can even agree to disagree in some of these areas. But if we miss verses 4 through 6, we miss our bridge to eternity. We miss our way to salvation and we miss our hope of peace in the future. And so I'd like for you to read these verses with me. Let's read them together. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see Jesus as our bridge to eternity? Friends, there is no room, no room for arrogance or self-righteous judgment in God's kingdom. My way is better than your way. My way is right and yours is wrong. I'm smart and you're stupid. Those kinds of attitudes don't belong in the Lord's church. We are called to honest introspection and to surrender to God and to do so with openness and in humility. And it is our role together to help others across the bridge of salvation. And you know what? We can't do that if we're fighting or arguing or jostling for power in the church. The solution for both the men and the women was that they followed Christ into deeper Christian community. You see, because it's only in fellowship with other Christians that we can find stability and purpose in our life. That is God's design. That's how he built the bridge. That's how he handed the bridge off to us. And that's how he asks us to maintain the bridge for future generations. So friends, may we, as a church, Garden Way Church, may we remain connected to God, reflecting his purposes and submitting to his ways when we all get together. Thank you for listening today. I know that this sermon was a bit longer than normal. There's a lot to cover here, but this is a core truth for us, folks, and I encourage you to think on these things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness of Jesus, who is our mediator, our one way to eternity, to hope, and to peace. 
Father, may we, your church, your people, may we experience true joy as we fellowship together. Father, may we work for ways, look for ways, and work together for ways that bring us together, that don't drive us apart. And may we focus on what is important, sharing Jesus with a lost and dying world. Guide us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're going to stand to sing in just a moment. I want to let you know if you're here.